All right, well, I am, I am excited to be here this morning, and I hope that you guys are as excited, if not more excited, than I am. We are, as Siobhan so eloquently said earlier during the worship set, we are celebrating our first Sunday service together in the new year. And it's interesting You know, to think that this group of people could be anywhere in the world right now. You know, I look at some of the families that are here and I know their family history, how God has brought them from places like Samoa to Hawaii to from Hawaii to Texas, from Texas to Alaska. I know families who have children who are traveling in the military right now, living on the East Coast down in Texas. Other families, as I look out, that are prepared to get married and they are celebrating their time in preparation in two different geographical locations. Another family, I look out in the audience and I see a father who's getting ready to send his children to college. The fact of the matter is we could be anywhere in the world right now that we want to be. With technology, you can get anywhere you want in the world. Art on a plane in what? Under 48 hours, guaranteed, right? Yeah. And you've decided to be here. And the hope is that your desire is not just to be present, but to encounter God. And when you encounter God, to be changed by God. That should be the goal. I remember it was... I remember like it was yesterday. I was 23 years old. It was the summer of 2005. And I was doing my best to kick chemical drug addiction long enough so that the army would take me. I needed out. I was in Southern California, living a life I was up to no good, and I was headed in one of two directions. There was a tombstone at the end of one road, and there was a set of bars with an eight-by-eight room at the, set of the, uh, at the end of the other. <laughs> and I was like, i got to get out of here. <laughs> I just need to get clean long enough to pass a piss test and the army's going to give me $20,000 to don a uniform and go fight the enemy overseas. I've been fighting in the streets long enough. I might as well start getting paid for it. <laughs> I went to basic training. My initial contract was going to take me from Fort Sill, Oklahoma to Fort Riley, Kansas. God, who I was not serving at the time, who I didn't acknowledge his existence at the time, he had other plans for me. 
I thought I was hitting the reset button, but he was hitting the reset button. <laughs> I went to Oklahoma. I did basic training. I graduated with honors at the age of 23. Not a difficult thing to do when you're surrounded by 18-year-olds. Okay? So don't think that I was anything special. <laughs> but when I graduated with honors, I got the opportunity to go to airborne school. I went to airborne school. Ground week, tower week, air week. Some call it jump week. First time go at every station. That changed my orders. I was no longer going to Fort Riley, Kansas. Now I was headed to Anchorage, Alaska to serve at Fort Rich. Right alongside the Air Force Base Elmendorf. I got up here in my first month. I was up in Denali. March in Denali, negative 50. We were dropping mortars, and they were freezing in the mortar tube before they could actually leave being fired out once the primer was hit and engaged. You could fire your rifle, and if you exhaled during the fire, your bolt would freeze to the back before it would actually hit and prime the bullet to launch the bullet out. I mean, it was cold. <laughs> and I was like, what did I do? What did I get myself into? Went down to JRTC, the Joint Readiness Training Center in Louisiana. I was here for the coldest winter of my life, and in August, I went to Fort Polk, Louisiana. <laughs> High and humid. <laughs> And I was training to go to Iraq. I knew I was getting ready to go to Iraq, and I knew I was going for at least a year. The unit did really well training at the Joint Readiness Training Center. Got on a plane, boots on ground in Iraq. The night before I got to FOB Falcon, indirect fire came in, hit the AHA, that's the ammo holding point, destroyed every piece of ammunition on the FOB. Can you imagine, there's video, can you imagine what happens when the ammo holding point gets hit by an indirect fire? Every piece of ammunition went off. Every bar of C4 exploded. Praise God they didn't hit the fuel center. And again, I was like, what did I get myself into? <laughs> I'll tell you, all of the training that I did in preparation for going to Iraq would have been worthless. In fact, I would say it was worthless in comparison to zeroing my rifle on the range. Because the most important thing that you need in a combat zone Second to a mission and a plan of attack and your bros on your right and your left is a dependable firearm and some ammunition. Standard load, seven mags on your chest, one in. 30 round magazines. But your firearm, your, your weapon, it is worthless if your zero has not been confirmed. Because you need to confirm your zero so that when you point your rifle at the intended target and you pull the trigger, 
it actually neutralizes the target and you know for a fact that what you're looking at, positive identification, is going to get hit by the ordinance that you're launching. So the most important thing that I could do in all of my training, in all of my preparation for what was to come, was to reconfirm my zero after confirming it. And then throughout the rest of my time in Iraq, whenever I had the opportunity to stand on a range, reconfirm the zero. (laughs) Saints, that's what we're doing this morning as we look into 2024. This morning as we open up the Word of God, we are going to reconfirm our zero because we are at war. (laughs) Don't mistake my passion for anger. I'm not mad at anybody, but a good leader knows how to get his men fired up. Right, Abe? We're on the field. It's go time, boys. The other team is the enemy. We will annihilate them. When we walk off this field, the scoreboard is going to reflect that they should have never stepped on it with us, right? Is that what a good coach does? That's what I'm trying to do here for the saints in Christ Jesus today. I'm trying to rally the troops to get ready for what is to come. We need to not only get ready, we need to be ready. (laughs) Yeah, today we're reconfirming our zero. We're in a series on the parable, and I couldn't think of a better parable to preach other than the Pharisee and the tax collector as we're looking at a new year and a new opportunity to serve and glorify God. So what we're going to do because this is how we do around here. We're going to listen to the Word of God. We're going to use our brain in the capacity where we hear the Word in a different capacity. And then we're going to read the Word of God and we're going to use our brain in a slightly different capacity as we prepare to receive what it is that God has in store for us today. Amen? So let's get ready and let's listen. Parable of the Pharisee and Tax Collector. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. If I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled those who humble themselves will be exalted. I listened to the words of this parable. And it reminds me of death on the battlefield. Complacency kills on the battlefield, being unprepared when you're standing on the battlefield. There's nothing worse, not just for you, but for those that you're with. 
And I'll tell you, after a long life of doing what is perceived to be the norm for you and for me, one of the greatest dangers that we fall prey to is complacency. Let's read the, the, the parable that we just listened to. Luke chapter 18 is where the parable is identified. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 14. And I want us to pay close attention to what it is that Jesus is actually saying here in the text. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week. I, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but he beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner I tell you Jesus says this man went down to his house justified rather than the other For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We're here to reconfirm our zero this morning, church, so that we have a proper perspective on life going into 2024. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Give me the ability to speak the truth from a foundation of grace with love. I pray that all of the people who are here, who are present, who are ready to listen and learn and participate in the study this morning, that they would be ready to hear from you more than they would be ready to hear from me. And I pray that as you use me to speak, God, the words that I speak would be tried trustworthy and true like your word is tried trustworthy and true. And whatever I speak that is not, Lord, let it just fall away. The goal of this morning's study is to set our focus on you, Lord, as we prepare to put one foot in front of the other to live lives that are worthy of the call that you have placed on us in the coming year. And so, Lord, we are here saying, whatever it is that we're holding on to, help us to drop it. Whatever it is that needs to be cut away so that we can actually be healthy and thriving in this life, cut it away, Lord. 
The noise of the world silence it. The distractions and the snares of the enemy remove them. And the desires of my own flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye, remove it, Lord, and when I engage in it, help me to be quick to repent and to turn from it, never to turn back to it. Father, we're asking for you to move on our behalf this morning so that we can actually leave here different than we walk through the door. Not for the sake of our reputation, but for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Thank you guys for being here. So we heard the story, we listened to the story, and then we read the story. Did we capture the essence of it? We've got two individuals with two completely different attitudes. Their attitudes inform two different types of prayer, and the prayer gives birth to two different outcomes. Okay? Let me say that again. Two different individuals with two different attitudes, two different attitudes that inform two different types of prayer, and two different types of prayer that bring about two different outcomes. We hear this story in our modern context, and we're like, I already have all the answers. I already know and understand the text. Matt, I've heard 20 plus sermons in my time in the church on this parable. Some of you may have even preached it. Well, if that's your attitude, God forgive you. <laughs> the Word of God is living and breathing. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it has the capacity to cut you if you stop rebelling against the cut. And the cut is for the health of your body. It's for the health so that you can grow. And if you resist that, or if you kick against that, you're doing yourself and you're doing those here a disservice. Because the more God changes and transforms you, the greater the impact you're going to have on this body. The more He changes and transforms you and the greater the impact you have on this body, the greater impact the church is going to have on the world that is lost and dying. And that is what we are here for, ladies and gentlemen. We are here to represent Christ to the world. And they're watching. No different than everybody's watching in the parable that we just read. What do I mean when I say everybody was watching? The parable only spoke of two individuals. Did it? See, that's where our modern lenses already short-circuit what the author Luke is actually trying to communicate to us. What's going on in the story beyond two different individuals with two different attitudes and two different types of prayers that lead to two different types of outcomes? Well, let's think about this. Where is the parable set? In the temple. So we have to begin with what the temple exists for what its function and purpose is for. Because if we don't know that, we're going to miss a majority of what God is trying to teach us through the words of Christ in this parable. The temple functions as a place of worship. Let's put this next picture up on the screen here. The 
This is a digital recreation of the second temple, also referred to as Herod's temple. And we know that this is what the temple looked like because of what archaeology has unveiled and because of what the text in connection to what archaeology teaches us and has unveiled. The temple is a place of worship. What type of worship service was going on at the temple in this parable? That's important for us to know. Twice a day, at the dawn and at 3 o'clock at the temple, atonement offerings were made. Atonement offerings for the sins of Israel. So twice daily, you had worship services going on where sacrifices were being made so that the sin of Israel could be atoned for, and these were corporate worship events. Joel Green describes the temple as a cultural anchor point. The chaos that exists in the world ceased here at the gate beautiful and everything became ordered more and more and more and more as you got to where the holy of holies where heaven met earth where the presence of god dwelt so for the nation of israel for the people of jerusalem this was a place that played a vital role in their society These twice daily services, they began outside the sanctuary. Notice if you're a Gentile, you couldn't get in and see anything. Notice if you were a woman, you couldn't go into the inner. Notice there's a place for Nazareth. There's even a place for the lepers. Do you see how segregation is taking place so that order can happen? This is why Paul would say to his audience that God is not a God of chaos, but God is a God of order. That statement is grounded in the geographical location that is the temple. Because that's where Jews worshipped. Sacrifices would take place on the altar. Here. This is a precise, time-consuming ritual. Something we know nothing about, if we're being honest. We may have read about it. We, have, we maybe have seen a couple of movies that mimic it unfolding. But in all actuality, there's nothing like watching a man take an animal with its feet bound, lay it on its side, take a knife to its throat, slit its throat, and you literally watch the life drain out of it. I've seen it. <laughs> it's intense. <laughs> And it takes time for the heart to slow and stop 
and for the skin to be removed and the bowels to be removed and the intestine to be removed and the fat to be removed so that the proper, precise sacrifice can take place. This is something that every Israelite, male and female, man and child, would not just know and understand. It's something they would have experienced. Something we are divided from, separated from, divorced from because of time and culture. It's this event that brought the Pharisee and the tax collector to the temple. Both of them recognizing their need for corporate participation in worship as well as the offering of an atoning sacrifice. Prayers would be offered up by the priests who were officiating the worship service. In the midst of the prayers being offered up, Silver trumpets would sound and cymbals would clang. And then another priest would step forward and he would read a psalm from the Psalter. All while the animal's being butchered. All while the blood of the animal is running over the atonement altar. Outside of the sanctuary. Some of the blood being collected up so that it could be taken in and sprinkled on the mercy seat. This is a well-ordered liturgy in a well-ordered space. (laughs) Following the reading of the psalm, the priest who was on duty to go into the sanctuary would take incense and blood and he would enter. When he would enter, he would offer incense... And he would trim the lamps, making sure that the wicks were good and the oil was full. It was his honor and his duty before the Lord to serve Israel in this capacity. Because if the the wicks were not trimmed and the oil was not full and the sacrifices was not taking place, sin could not be dealt with. It could not be covered While the priest was in performing his duties, this would be the time when those in attendance would offer public and private prayers. So the service would unfold with the sacrifice taking place and the prayers being offered up by the priest first with the sound of the trumpets and the clanging of the cymbals. And then when the priest would disappear into the sanctuary, then the people would participate in the corporate worship by offering up their prayers. This, by way, is illustrated in the ascending smoke of the incense going up to God. That is what we see symbolically in the prayers that are being offered before God. So as he is stoking the incense and adding some to it and the smoke begins to go up before God, the nation is actually praying. Simultaneously, these events are unfolding. As he's ministering and trimming the lamps so that the light can burn, the light represents the presence of God in the midst of his people. And we know that the presence of God can only 
engage and, and encounter the people in their midst when sin has been what? Dealt with. <laughs> we need to understand this stuff. As modern students of the text, we can't just go, oh, I don't care about what life was like for them. Because Jesus is telling a story where every single one of these uh, aspects is vital to our understanding. It's like when the unbeliever or the new person to church comes in here and they're like, why are they singing a song? Why are they singing three songs? Why are they singing four songs? Why do they bow their head and close their eyes when they pray? What does that mean? They have no idea. And we would say it's important for them to learn the culture of the church. Well, if it's important for the non-believer in our day to learn the culture of the church, it's important for the bride of Christ, the church, to know the culture of cult ritual practice in the day when Jesus was alive. Because all of this lays the foundation for what it is that he's teaching. Both men understood that they needed to have their sin atoned for. Both men understood that there was two times throughout the day that they could come. And both men decided to come at the same time for the same reason. And this sets the context for the parable. Some of you might be going, I don't know, Matt. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere in Luke chapter 18. And I'd say, you're absolutely correct. I'd say, but look at Luke's opening chapter with me real quick. Now, while he, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist prior to his birth... Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, so he's at the temple. That's what that communicates. And we'll find that out here later in the passage. Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, notice he doesn't serve alone, but he serves on a team of priests. Remember how everything was going on? One man couldn't do it all. According to the customs of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and what? Burn incense. Oh, and what is this? This is interesting. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Luke doesn't need to describe what's going on for his readers in chapter 18 because he's already unveiled what's going on in Luke chapter 1. And everyone who was reading his letter for the very first time, who was a, a Gentile and not a Jew, would need this passage right here to help frame what's going on in 18 no different than we would. Isn't it wonderful how God has given us all that we need for life and godliness? Luke authored volume 2, Acts. And Acts has a whole lot to say about temple practices too. And the early church participated in all of it until the temple was destroyed in A.D. 66 to 70. So we got to know this. We got to know this because post-Calvary, 
the early church was still attending temple if they were Jewish. Still participating in all of the ritual cult sacrifices and every feast and festival that was going on in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, in the end of Paul's life, after he's been saying, you don't need to be circumcised, and you don't need this, and you don't need that, he goes back to Jerusalem, and what does he do? He takes a Nazarite vow, he washes, he purifies himself, and he takes an offering where? To the temple. (laughs) Did he need to do that to be saved? No, he was doing it to be honorable to that which preceded him. I'll be a Jew to the Jew and a Gentile to the Gentile. Why? So that I might win one to Christ. This brings us back to our narrative, our parable for the day. Let's put up verse 9. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Stop. Who is the original audience that Jesus is talking to right here? So often in this modern context, we're thinking, yeah, Pharisees bad. (laughs) Pharisees bad. You know, the Pharisees are the bad guy, right? Pump the brakes. Who's Jesus talking to? Well, turn back one page in your Bible to chapter 17 and look at verse 22. And he, Jesus, said to the who? The disciples. Oh, now there's no change in scene from chapter 17 to 18. He's teaching his disciples. And he's teaching them using parables. Our very first observation is that Jesus is not talking about the Pharisees. He's talking about his own followers and he's using the Pharisees to image them. That means anyone in here who's claiming to be a disciple of Christ, Jesus is talking to you. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. talking to the disciples he told this parable to some to those who were following him to those who had given up everything to follow after him and in the midst of that group of people there were some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous we are anything but righteous my friends We are anything but righteous. Righteousness, you know, this is one of the very first words you learn when you're studying the original languages, dikaionis. You know, oh man, this is like one of Paul's favorite words. You know? Righteousness. It's right up there with justification. Paul loves these words. 
And I would say, yeah, yes, he does. Amen. But that background that informs Paul's perspective, it's the Hebrew Bible. So it's the Hebrew language that gave birth to how we should actually understand the foundation of the Greek language. And so we should ask ourselves, well, what is the term that's being used in the Hebrew language? And it's sukkah. And in the Hebrew Bible, which is our Bible as well, but it's Genesis to Malachi, righteousness is most often ascribed to Yahweh. The God of gods. And it, it's not just ascribed to him, but it describes his saving acts. So we have to look at this word righteousness and what these people are assuming for themselves as something that belongs to God only. <laughs> One of the perfect places to turn to see this on like front row display, up close and personal, is Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. This is Yahweh speaking to the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel. How have I wearied you? <laughs> Answer me. I love verse 4. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent Moses before you and Aaron and Miriam. God is describing His saving acts through the lips of the prophet as He speaks to Israel. Oh, I've wearied you, my friends. <laughs> Let me remind you of how you even got here. I saved you. I redeemed you, and I welcomed you into covenant with me. Oh, my people, remember Balak, the, Mo, the king of Moab, and how he devised plans with Balaam, the son of Beor, against you. Every time the prophet of the pagan nation of Moab went to speak a cursing against Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness, Yahweh disallowed him that ability. <laughs> a false prophet speaking true prophecies under the authority of Yahweh. He's saying, don't forget that. If it were up to them, they would have taken you out in the wilderness. Also remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Remember I fed you with manna from heaven? Remember when there was no water, I broke the rock open? 
Remember when, uh, remember when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebelled and they put the lampstand out and they said those who want to stand with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in the rebellion, stand with them. And those who want to stand with Moses and Aaron and Miriam, stand with them. And the earth opened up like never before and swallowed the living into Sheol. He was protecting his children from rebellious insiders. Think about when Paul says the wolves will creep up from amongst you and within you. He's thinking of the history of Israel and how that very thing happened in the wilderness while God was supernaturally feeding and watering his sheep. Protecting them from an enemy they didn't even know was trying to curse them. God's righteousness is God's saving acts. God is the deliverer. He is our protector. He is our provider. Look at verse 6 of chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? This is like a wonderful rhetorical question that every human is asking. How can I come before God and bow myself before God on high? Ah, shall I do it this way? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Ha ha, maybe I should give my firstborn. Maybe I should give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? It's not sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It's that you would do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before your God. This is the righteousness that God has displayed in his rescuing of Egypt from slavery and his redeeming them as a people of himself. And the very same thing he did for Israel is the very thing he expects Israel to do to their brothers in Israel and to the nations that surround them. Amen? The problem is <laughs> the ones who assumed the righteousness of God on themselves, they were treating others with contempt. <laughs> the very thing the prophet in Micah says, don't do! Righteousness undermines the treatment of others with contempt. So can you see the implicit warning in the very first verse before the, proper, before the parable proper even starts? Jesus is warning his disciples. In the past, Israel has forgotten. In the present, Israel has misplaced their trust in the law and they've abrogated trust in Yahweh. My disciples, don't be like Israel. All of that summed up in this sentence right here. In this very first verse, Luke, our author, is laying the backdrop for the parable. 
Don't be like Israel. They forgot their first love. Don't be like Israel. They have exchanged the worship of Yahweh for the fulfillment of the law. Checklist. Task and duty. I can do all that. And therefore, they assume what only belongs to God. And when they assume that which is not theirs, they turn it on others like a weapon. I'm here to tell you the church is guilty today. No different then Jesus knew his disciples would be guilty in their lives. He's writing to them. The word is for us. So let's continue to read and let's open up the parable proper now. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. We've already discussed the type of worship service that they were going to and the recognition of both men that they needed to be there and why they needed to be there. It was the same event that brought these two men up to the temple to pray. We hear the word pray Arabic countries and we think only conversate with God. But in the first century and in Arabic countries, when you say you're going to pray, the people understand that you're going to worship. One of these men who went up to the temple was a Pharisee. Everyone listening would have been like, that's the hero of the story right there. That's our religious leaders. That's our pious people. They set the greatest example in word and deed. They spared Israel during the intertestamental period from going holy into the Greek-influenced Judaism referred to as Hellenism. It was the Pharisees who kept the law. It was the Pharisees that maintained the law. And it was the Pharisees that passed on the tradition of Torah faithfully. That's our hero. Of course he's going to the temple to worship. Because he is a man of God. He's talking to the disciples. Which means he's talking to us. And the other a tax collector. And everyone went, boops. <laughs> if we don't have the reality that God is about to pull a massive role reversal, in the backdrop of our minds, we're going to miss what he's trying to teach us. <laughs> the Pharisee is the pious worshiping, conservative, right-wing Christian in America. And the one who lets everyone know that's exactly what he is. Because I'll speak the truth. Because it's all about the truth. And I won't emulate love. I'll speak the truth and I'll let God deal with the grace. <laughs> and then there's the tax collector. The scum of society. The one who actually was committing treason against his nation while he worked for Rome. So he had committed sedition. His money was most often dirty because he would cheat his fellow Israelite brothers by charging more 
than they were supposed to pay, and they could do nothing about it because all he would do was tell the Roman centurion, and he would dispatch a portion of the legion, and they would destroy the non-paying tax citizen because that was seen as defying Caesar. Did you know that tax collectors' money was rejected in the synagogues? They couldn't even offer their money to God in the synagogues. You know who taught in the synagogues? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. So can you see the poles that Jesus is setting up here in the story? Can you see the cult worship system that's in existence to bring order to the nation that reflects the character and the nature of God? So cult ritual practices are just ritual practices. Sacrifices, prayers, anything that's laid out in Torah that Israel is expected to do. Don't think occult. Cult, without the O. We have cultic practices in the church when we take communion, when we baptize. We like to refer to them as ordinances or sacraments, but they are one and the same. So Jesus has set up the poles in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And like I said, the original audience is looking at the Pharisee to play the role of the hero. That's their Captain America. That's their Iron Man. That's their Superman. That's their Wonder Woman. That's their Aquaman. That's their hero. Okay? Boo, I get it. Notice that the audience, Jesus' disciples, have unwillingly already stepped into the trap of rooting for the wrong guy. How often do we step into the own, our own trap of rooting for the wrong guy? I can't tell you how many TV shows I watch where I'm rooting for the guy who's evil. He may be the lesser of two, but he's still evil. So when you think, no, not me, Matt. <laughs> Anybody love Breaking Bad? Yeah, I'm rooting for a bad guy. <laughs> I mean, I'm just being honest. Pick your show. Pick your poison. You know? Let's keep reading this parable. Verse 11 and 12. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Let's stop right here. We've talked about the temple. We've talked about the temple layout. We've talked about the corporate public worship that's taking place. Look at the Pharisee. He's standing where? By himself. Oh, but if we take off our modern lens, we would say, of course he's standing by himself. He's worried about ritual purity. He doesn't know where these other people have been. 
He doesn't know if this person has touched a dead body or if this person has touched a dead animal. He doesn't know if this person had a nocturnal emission. He doesn't know if this person is on her period. None of that, but all of that could soil his ritual purity and disqualify him from being in the presence of God where the Pharisee wants to be, right? Oh Lord, I want you and you alone. So again, don't get it twisted. He's not doing anything wrong by standing by himself. Or is he? What's the posture of his heart? I mean, it's not like Luke is going to just come right out and tell us what the posture of his heart is. we got to keep reading. But the people would assume his piety. They wouldn't assume his hypocrisy. You guys know that I'm capable of doing much worse than this, right? Do not put your faith in your pastor. I will fail you. I will let you down. I will sin against myself and against you and against the world. And when that happens... I'm going to need accountability and grace and mercy and patience so that I can be restored. So do not put your faith in your pastor. Put your faith in God. Standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector that I can see in the sea of people worshiping here in your presence today. (laughs) I thank you that I'm not like them. Let me remind you, omniscient one, in case you've forgotten, (laughs) I fast twice a week. The law only requires the nation of Israel to fast once a year during Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But Lord, I want you to remember me. I fast twice a week. (laughs) The Pharisees were known for fasting regularly two days before and two days after every festival which required them to fast 12 days out of the year. But this guy wants the Lord God of heaven and earth to know I'm even more pious than the other Pharisees. I like, I got it going on, God. <laughs> I'm in church every Sunday, Lord. I started a nonprofit, Lord. I adopted a kid in Africa, Lord. I adopted another kid in Africa, Lord. <laughs> Come on now, I give 10% and then I give more, Lord. (laughs) I'm an elder. I serve, Lord. My community knows how faithful I am. I've baptized my family. (laughs) I just want you to remember, Lord, (laughs) my righteousness. I give tithes of all that I get. The law only required tithing on the the first fruits of your grain. On the first fruits of your field. 
If you weren't an agriculture field worker and you were like a, someone who was growing like, you know, flocks of sheep and goats and her, then you would tithe first fruits on that. This guy says, I go beyond the written word, Lord. I go beyond it and I give tithes on everything. It's almost like you owe me now. Don't forget, God. Now we hear this prayer on this side of the cross, divorced from the culture, divorced from everything that's going on in the first century, and we think, what an idiot! How could he pray something like this? Well, again, this would be perfectly acceptable in the first century. How do we know that? We have historical sources that come out of the first century that teach us what the rabbis used to pray. So let's look at a couple of examples just so that we can prove that this would be culturally acceptable in the first century. This would actually meet the standard expectation. Let's go to the next slide. Rabbis, the son of Halakaz, I give thanks before you, Lord my God, that you have placed my lot among those who sit in the study hall, and that you have not given me my portion among those who sit idly on street corners. I rise early, and they rise early. I rise early to, posture, to pursue matters of Torah. They rise early to pursue frivolous matters. I toil, ah, they toil. I toil and receive a reward, and they toil and do not receive a reward. I run and they run. I run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. This is a standard rabbinic prayer. Passed on from one rabbi to his disciples, from his disciples to their disciples. Because this is piety. This is demonstrable works that one can see and know and understand, not before God, but before man. That's the problem. The motivation is horizontal. It's not vertical. Let's look at another example. Rabbi Mir would say, a man is obligated to recite three blessings every day, praising God for his kindness. And these blessings are... Oh, I praise God who did not make me a Gentile. I praise God who did not make me a woman. And I praise God who did not make me an ignoramus. That's a good observation. Don't get this line right here twisted. The rabbi is thankful because women are not allowed to serve God in the capacities that they serve God. And so he's thanking God for giving him the gender that allows him to fill the office and the role of that which he holds. It's not a stab against women in general. But look at this. I'm Yeah, the greater context is bad. I just want to make sure that we understand that this is not a, an attack on women. There are many rabbinic prayers that praise women for the things that they do. So here's the deal. 
His prayer, let's go back to the slide, the previous slide with what we're looking at. His prayer would have been viewed as good and holy in the temple context. Even the disciples of Jesus needed to have their zero reconfirmed so that they could actually understand this is not God's will. Can you imagine having to swim upstream against this? And every Christian right now should say, yeah, because I'm in the middle of swimming upstream myself. Our culture is not for us. Our nation is not for us. Our government is not for us. And like Brent said, Jesus warned us. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, but in this world you will experience tribulation. They're going to hate you because they hated me. So here we are. In a culture and in a context where this is viewed as holy, Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 13 through 15 will give the note takers and the people who want to go home and study this week something to look at because there is a a liturgical prayer in Deuteronomy 26, 13 through 15 and you want to look at the whole chapter where they do recite the things that they have done for God. But notice the context of Deuteronomy 26 is corporate liturgical worship where you are acknowledging what you did for God, not in the negative sense of what others have done and you have not. And so it sets, go back to the Luke slide. So it sets the matters of his prayer and the cultural acceptability in the first century on its head because they actually misconstrued what the Torah commanded. You guys want to look at it real quick or do you want to keep going? You guys want to look at it? Okay, we can look at it. Deuteronomy 26. Start in verse 13. And then you shall say before the Lord your God. Just stop right there real quick and notice that when they finished in verse 12, when they finished paying all the tithe of the produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite and to the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow so that they may eat and be filled. It's only then that you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion of my house. This is a proclamation of obedience. And moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner and the fatherless to the widow according to all your commandments that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have eaten of the tithe. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning or removed any of it while I was unclean or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done all according to what you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people. He's not asking for a personal blessing. He's in a corporate worship service. He's acknowledging his rightness before God. And he's saying, I've only done this because you've commanded it. And because I've been obedient, don't bless me. Bless the nation. Bless others. Very different from what the Pharisee is asking. He goes on to say, you swore this promise to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
So can you see how the Pharisees were like, look, the Torah commands us to stand in the public presence of all of Israel and talk about how good we are. It's like, no, it doesn't. God's desire was for the nation to celebrate together and to incur the blessing not on themselves in their obedience and in their loyalty to God, but to ask for God's blessing on the ones to their right and their left. This is painting a very different picture from what we read here in the parable. And this is supposed to be the hero. Let's keep reading. But the tax collector standing far off. It's like he knows in his heart of hearts how the rest of the world sees him. When you read in Luke's gospel about the tax collectors, it's often with the sinners and with the prostitutes. They would have immediately been deemed by their peers as unclean. So the, so the Pharisee stands because he desires ritual purity. The tax collector stands because he wants to honor those around him by not defiling them. It's a recognition of who he truly is. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He's just dejected. His posture, like his profession, is the spiritual pole to the Pharisee's posture and profession. He beats his breast in public as he probably weeps and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now let me tell you, my time in Iraq, as a soldier, my platoon did things that we were required to do in and on the battlefield. Not all of it's beautiful. I spent 15 months in Iraq, and I spent 12 months in Afghanistan, two Middle Eastern countries with customs that mirror what we're reading about to this day. And I've only seen people beat their chest once in my 27 months in country. And the only people to do it were the women because it's shameful for a man to beat his chest. And the women did it when we shot their child who was standing in the road. So the mother and the grandmother of the child that we shot grabbed dirt from the earth, threw it in the air, wept and wailed and beat their chest. And this went on for hours as our medic worked to save this child's life and we called a nine line in so that a black hawk could come and take that child to the hospital cash so in 27 months of being in the middle east myself i have one experience of seeing public grief that required this type of behavior and it was intense situation Nothing. I was there when we hung Saddam. Nobody beat their breast. We kicked in so many doors at night, hauled fathers away from their families. Wives were pregnant. Nobody beat their breast. 
But when the child lay on the ground, bleeding out in front of its mother and its grandmother, they beat their chest. The only other place in the New Testament where people are viewed beating their chest is at the cross of Christ. This Pharisee understood his position before the Lord. This is a little bit tricky right here. Be merciful to me, a sinner. This word merciful is not the standard word in Greek for mercy. Entry-level Christianity, the women are getting ready to discuss the ABCs of Christianity. You learn, right? Grace is unmerited favor, and mercy is me not getting what I deserve. But this is not the word, the standard Greek term for, for mercy. This is a different word. Helexomai, I think, is how it's pronounced in the Greek. And it actually means atone for me. So this can be translated, and it should be translated, God atone for me a sinner this is what's that propitiate yep so here's the deal this man is at the festival in the temple that takes place twice a day and he's watching the life of an innocent spotless animal be bled and drained out so that his sin can be covered. Does he pray to the animal that his sin would be covered? Or that to the animal that, his, that the blood would atone for his sin? No. The tax collector understands the symbology that's going on in the law when he says, Yahweh, God of gods, atone for me as he's watching the atonement sacrifice take place for the nation. And as the priest goes in to trim the lamps and set the incense in, sim in symbolism of the light of Christ and the people's prayers coming together, what is he doing? He's standing in the courtyard praying. He's actually speaking to God. We might be able to argue that the Pharisee is speaking to the people. God, atone for me, a sinner. I want to go a step further and I want us to open our Bibles to Psalm 51 and I want to prove that this tax collector knew his Torah, knew his Psalms, his wisdom literature, and he knew his prophets. The opening of Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's as if the tax collector is so broken up about who he is that he can't recite the psalm in its entirety so in the midst of his tears i picture a man who's barely choking out the words god atone for me a sinner some scholars try to argue that we have no proof that the tax collector ever made a sacrifice at the temple 
And this is where verse 16 and 17 come in clutch in Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice. What? Doesn't that sound like Micah, the prophet that we read? Is it the bulls, Lord, and the calves and the blood and the oil that runs over the altar that satisfies you? Is it my firstborn that I should offer? For you, O Yahweh, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, here's the answer, are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He made his sacrifice. He knew it, and God knew it. And the sacrifice that he made in his prayer was more valuable than 10,000 rams and 10,000 kilograms of oil. And it's in the close of this parable in verse 14 that we find the third and veiled character of the parable. It's Jesus himself who says, I tell you, oh, this is some of the best news for some and this is some of the scariest news for others. But I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. If you go back and you look at the opening of the parable, the other is the tax collector. Now, the tax collector goes home and the Pharisee is downgraded to the other. This man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. And everyone in the original audience is going, no, no way. It can't be. Say that it isn't so, Lord. I've tried my entire life to be like the Pharisee. I wanted my whole life to be wholly dedicated in worship as he is wholly dedicated in worship. And it's in this parable that Jesus says, no, 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 no. The filthy, unrighteous, wicked sinner who you look down on is the one that I love. That's the one that I came to die for. I did not come for the righteous, Luke records, but I came for the sick who need a doctor. Jesus introduces himself in this verse as the judge of the living and the dead. Remember in our introduction how we talked about how people like to say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. What's he doing here? He's judging the actions of the heart, not judging the actions that everybody's looking at. Oh, he sees, and he knows, and he is ready to honor the loyal and to shame the wicked. This one that you would never think went home justified. There's that Pauline word, justification. He went home saved, everybody. This parable is like the foundation for Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone in the righteousness of Christ. When people say, no, 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 Paul made up his atonement theory. 
No, 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 no. Paul gave new meaning to justification and to salvation. Salvation is like the deliverance of Israel as a nation being restored to the land. Yeah, it's that. Salvation is like being released from demonic oppression. Yeah, it's that too. Salvation is being healed when you are sick. Yes, it's that. But this is messianic level prophetic fulfillment right here that Jesus is talking about when he will judge the living and the dead. The king of the earth. All that is seen and unseen. And he gives the criteria for how he will judge. How will God judge? That is the question that should be aching you right now. Because if we know how God will judge, then we can pass the test. <laughs> for everyone who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be what? Was Christ exalted? Do you want to be like Christ? Do you want to be exalted on the day of glory? Yes! <laughs> then you must first humble yourself. Recognize what belongs to God and to God alone. Acknowledge the shortcomings as an imperfect human being. And then chase after God. We see in the Babylonian Talmud, which was authored like 200 years after the life of Jesus, or at least that's the earliest copy we have, we see this wonderful phrase. It says, To this teach you that anyone who humbles himself, the Holy One, blessed be he, he exalts him. And anyone who exalts himself, the Holy One, blessed be he, humbles him. Luke chapter 14, verse 11. Jesus teaches this in Luke's gospel for the first time. That those who are prideful will be humbled and those who are humbled will be exalted. You can read Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. John chapter 3, verse 30. James chapter 4, verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. Psalm 51, verse 17, which we read this morning. Proverbs 3, 34 in the wisdom literature. God gives grace to the humble but he opposes the proud. If you are proud, I'm here to tell you that God opposes you. That is a bad place to be. If you think you know better than God, if you think your plans are better, if you think your ways are higher, God opposes you. He meets your opposition with a greater opposition. All the while... He has said, I sent my son into the world. His blood was shed and it atoned for the sin of the world. It took away, expiated. It took away the sin of the world. And you can be covered by that. And God's righteousness can be applied to you. And you can walk in the righteousness of Christ. You don't need your own righteousness. You can't get your own righteousness. But God will give you His. So here we are, church, in the beginning of a new year, asking for our zero to be reconfirmed. Do not walk out of here going, I'm so glad I'm not like the Pharisee, because immediately you have become just like the Pharisee. Don't do it. 
Don't leave here with that on your mind. That's not what I'm teaching you this morning. That's not what God is saying this morning. You are a sinner, and you need God to atone for you because you can't do it apart from Him. For good deeds, church, here's your application for the sermon. Do not let your good deeds become your worst enemy. I'm talking to the saints in Christ. Do not let your good deeds become your worst enemy. That's what the Pharisee did. I do this. I do that. I'm not like them. His goodness, everything that he did that culture affirmed, everything that was praised in society, that actually separated him from God. So the application point of the church is do not let your goodness become your worst enemy. To the unbeliever in the room, I just want to ask you if you've ever thought or if you've even considered praying the prayer of the tax collector. I'm here to tell you that he walked out of the temple a tax collector. His life didn't instantly become what culture deemed holy. The love of God was made available to him through the covenant that was given to Moses. The sacrifice was made and he recognized his need for the atonement that the sacrifice provided. Which means God takes us as we are. And he loves us too much to leave us there. Doubt me? I dare you to pray the prayer of the tax collector. And mean it. Mean it. If you've ever been hurt by the Pharisees of the church and you're sitting in here and you're questioning your faith, you feel like you're white-knuckling it because you've been let down by humanity, I'm telling you, do not ascribe to God what need be ascribed to humanity. I'm also here to tell you, do not take what is not humanity's and only belongs to God and ascribe it to yourself. We need to know, saints, that we're walking into 2024. We've had our zero reconfirmed. Our perspective should have been challenged this morning. Who am I? I'm neither the Pharisee or the tax collector but I am the filthy, wretched sinner who is crying out to God, God, atone for me, a sinner. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Sometimes I got to admit that I don't like it because it doesn't just cut me, but it cuts me so deep. I am a Pharisee in so much of my time, I am a self-righteous, filthy sinner 
who thinks more about himself than he does of others. And I need your blood to wash me and cleanse me from not just that iniquity, but from all of my iniquity, Lord. And I know that I have come to you in the past and told you that I will be loyal to you. But the repentance of the Christ follower need be a daily practice. Just as the atoning sacrifice was a daily, twice daily practice under the Old Covenant. Like Peter, I'm not asking you to wash my entire body, Lord, but I am acknowledging that my feet need to be cleaned. Father, as we are going into 2024 as a church and as a family, I'm praying that you will consistently help us to reconfirm our zero so that we can see as you see, so that we can love as you love, so that we can actually be known by our love for one another. God forbid that another year goes by that the church is known for what it stands against more than known for what it stands for. Help us, Lord, because apart from you, we can do nothing. As we close out this service this morning, Lord, we pray all honor and all power and all glory to you, the one true God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. If you are going into 2024 and you need prayer, there's going to be people standing here who are willing to pray with and for you. Don't leave here before doing business with God. Don't do it. <laughs> Let's do our doxology together. There's donuts in the back and then we can fellowship. Can you guys read this with me, please? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.